Well, good morning, everyone. I have a confession I want to begin with. I come from a long line of stubborn men. Long line of stubborn men. My grandfather, he grew up in a time where he served in the military. And back in the 1950s, in the military, if someone told you to do something, you did it. And then, as he got out of the military, he started his own business. He started a printing press. And in the 1960s, when you're running your own business in a small town in Iowa, if you told one of your employees to do something, it did it. And then he was a Catholic man. He had seven children. And when you have a teenager at home and you tell them to do something, yeah, it's pretty shaky. You got it. It's pretty shaky. So one particular day, before leaving for work, he told my father, Phil, who was a teenager, he said, Phil, when I come home, I want to see that grass cut. Now, Bill thought surely when he came home that day, that grass would be lower than when he left. But that afternoon when he came home, that grass was just a little bit taller than when he left. Now, he was pretty sure that he had figured out what Phil's problem was. Phil was distracted. And Phil was distracted with his motorcycle. So Bill did what any reasonable parent would do. He went into the garage. He took that motorcycle. He wheeled it out of that garage. He wheeled it around the back of the house. And he let that motorcycle go down into the back of the ravine. Now Phil came home. Phil thought that he had time to mow the grass. But he went into the garage. He looked for his motorcycle. Couldn't find it. Went inside and the house bit of a panic. Dad, have you seen my motorcycle? He said, well, son, you should take a look around back the house. So Phil runs out of the house. He goes around the back. He looks in the ravine. He can't believe it. So he goes into the garage. He takes out the lawnmower. And he wheels it around the back of the house. And he lets that mower go into the back of that ravine. Why? Because I come from a long line of stubborn men. That's why. And everybody goes, well, what do they do? They both went and got their own machines out of the back of that ravine. And then who cut the grass? Well, that's why you have seven kids. You get another one to do it. The stubbornness. Now, positively defined stubbornness is a trait that we all need to be resolute, to be determined. But what I'm describing here is the negative definition of stubbornness. It's to be unreasonably obstinate. Unreasonably obstinate. And if we're all honest here today, each and every one of us is sitting next to a stubborn person. You can point to them now. You know who they are. They're here. Now, my father was an unreasonably obstinate teenager. He grew up into an unreasonably opposite man. He never finished high school because he punched the vice principal out. He lost multiple jobs because he knocked his bosses out. And he died at 57 of a heart attack because he wasn't willing to go to the hospital. Stubborn. Stubborn. And all of us can be stubborn in things that doesn't really matter. And I mean, if you're unreasonably obstinate about where you sit at your house, or you're unreasonably obstinate about what you order when you go to the restaurant, or you're unreasonably obstinate of what channel you're watching, probably not big consequences in life. 
But what happens when we're unreasonably obstinate before the Lord of the universe? What happens when we're so stubborn that the Lord calls us clearly to do something or not to do something, and we have the boldness and the willingness to go, I'm going to do it my way. What happens then? Whether we're believers in Jesus Christ or not, we'll talk to both ends as we go through today's message. What happens when we stand before the Lord of the universe and we go, my way is the way that I'm going to do it? What happens when we're unreasonably obstinate? And what is the solution to a stubborn heart? Well, to answer that, I want to look at Jonah chapter 1. Because as it turns out, there's a few unreasonably obstinate people in the scriptures So if you have a copy of the scriptures, open up with me to Jonah 1. If not, you can follow along on the screen. And so as we turn to Jonah 1, I want to remind you of a few things. One, Jonah's a very common story. Jonah, everyone knows, is the guy who got swallowed by a big fish, by a whale. That's right. The thing is, though, is that if we think about Jonah and we limit his story to just that single moment when he gets swallowed by the fish, we have to realize that it's a short book. It's four chapters. It's 48 verses. The fish only gets mentioned three times. The fish is only part of the story. It's not the whole story. Second thing I would say is that a lot of people today, there's an increase of liberal scholarship, look at the story of Jonah as a story not as history. But the reality is that in Matthew 12, Jesus looked at the story of Jonah as the very basis of the fact that he would be in the ground for three days and then resurrected. What sense does it make if we believe in a literal resurrection that Jesus would base the sureness of that happening on a story that was made up? Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? And I don't know about you, but for me, I would rather take my cues of how I read the Bible from Jesus than from a liberal scholar. For me, I'm just banking on him having better interpretation. (laughs) The guy who can accurately predict his death and resurrection, I'm going with him every time. He seems to have the corner market on truth. And finally, this. Jonah gets mentioned one other time in the Old Testament, in the book of 2 Kings, and he gets mentioned as a prophet. A prophet's job is twofold. One, to tell the future foretelling. The second job is this, calling Israel back to their relationship with God. Jonah is very unique in that he is the prophet called outside of the borders of Israel to call a Gentile, a non-Israel nation, to repentance. Very unique mission. Forerunner, in some sense, to the Messiah Jesus and to the work of the apostles, particularly Paul. So let's read the first few verses here. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amate, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pause there. A couple things. So Jonah is a prophet of the Lord, meaning it's his job to do what the Lord says. And it says that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. What's interesting here is that sometimes in the scriptures... It's very clear how the word of the Lord comes to an individual, sometimes through dreams, sometimes through visions, sometimes through an angel. 
sometimes through a prophet. Think of the prophet Nathaniel to David. However, in this instance, the text is silent into how the word came to Jonah. Why? Because the emphasis is on who is speaking. Think about this. It's the Lord communicating to Jonah to go to Nineveh. And he gets up and he goes the opposite way. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Okay, it's about 500 miles northeast of Israel. Jonah's kind of right in the north center of, of Israel, pretty close to Nazareth, Gath Heifer. And instead he goes down to Jaffa, it's a port city on the Mediterranean, and he sails to Tarshish, which we believe is a port city in Italy, about 2,000 miles the other direction. To put it in geographical context of the United States, let's say Pastor Matt came to me this morning. He says, Matt, Jared, you got it down. I don't need to be here. Announcements are going to go off without a hitch without me being here. I want to hook you up. What can I get you? I go, Matt, thank you so much. That's so kind of you to offer that. Can you go get me a pierogi? Matt's like, that's a weird request. Is that like the dumpling thing? I'm like, yeah, it's like the dumpling thing. He's like, sure, where do I get pierogies at? I was like, well, the best pierogies are in Cleveland. It's the best. And then Matt says, sure. And he goes to O'Hare and he flies to Seattle to get me a bagel. He goes four times the mileage in the opposite direction. Now the question is why? Why? A lot of people want to think that Jonah was scared to go to the Assyrians. He was scared that something bad would happen to him there. But if we were to skip lunch and just keep going through the whole book, if we got to chapter 4, what would we find out in Jonah's prayer to the Lord in his conversation with the Lord after the Ninevites had repented? He would say, this is exactly what I feared would happen. I didn't want the Assyrians to repent. He wanted the Assyrians to burn, to be punished. And the reason is, is because he knew the greatest threat to Israel at that time was the Assyrians. He wants the Assyrians to experience the punishment of God so that the Israelites would be safe. But the longer the Assyrians exist, the longer their capital is okay, the bigger threat they are. He didn't want to see repentance. Think about it. If you're scared, you don't leave your country, go to another country. You stay within your borders. He's going in the opposite direction because he wants to get as far away from even having the chance of presenting truth to the Assyrians. That's why he goes the other direction. That, ladies and gentlemen, is stubbornness. The Lord speaks to you directly, tells you exactly where to go, exactly what to do, and you go the other direction. Unreasonably obstinate. It's not afraid, doesn't want to see him repent. And after they do repent, not much longer in Israel's history, Assyria does come into northern Israel. And they do kill Israelites. And they do deport Israel. It was a legitimate fear. It was a real fear. It wasn't imaginative. It was real. Now, let's see what happens when he goes down to Joppa. Now remember, it says he's trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. So one of the questions lingering in our mind is, is how bad is Jonah's theology? Right? 
if you think you can get away from an all-present God by leaving Israel. We'll see in a moment. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest, this is a storm, on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, had laid down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Let's pause real quickly here. Notice something. I believe this is Jonah writing this book after the events. He does something literarily that's very clever, but very subtle. Notice what Jonah is doing direction-wise. He's going down from Gath Hepha to Joppa. Down. Then he's going down to the ship. Once he's in the ship, he's going down into the inner part of the ship. And then once he's there, he, goes, he lays down to go to sleep. This repetition of the word down over and over and over again here is signaling the direction that Jonah is heading from the Lord. It's a direction of disobedience. Every movement is taking a step away from the Lord, unreasonably obstinate. Down, 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 down. And then the captain of the ship comes because the storm is so severe in the Mediterranean. And he says, get up and call out to your God. Now, here's a question. What's the chances that if you're willing to hear from the Lord and go the other direction, that this guy is going to hold any sway over him? Right? What's the chances? Zero, right? Like, if you're willing to go, Lord, no thanks. <laughs> if the captain shows up, you're like, nah, I call, I'm, it's okay. I don't need to get up. I'm napping. So what happened? Verse 7. They said to one another, this is sailors, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to him, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Okay, so a lot happens here. So the sailors are trying to figure out whose fault is this storm. So they cast lots. Most likely the sailors are not Israelites. Israelites were not big on the sea, not big on sailing. Most likely they're Phoenicians, so they're pagans. They're not worshiping Yahweh. They're worshiping other gods, most likely Canaanite deities. And so these guys are like, let's cast lots. Sort of like uh, rolling dice. Like if you predetermine what the outcome of the dice are, that would point you to whose direction it is. Sometimes they would do this with animal bones. It was a practice throughout this ancient Near East. Both pagans did it and Israelites did it. But something the scriptures teach us is that the Lord is able to direct the casting of lots. Now this is bonus. Anybody know when the last time casting of lots shows up in the scripture? Good, good. So yeah, I heard two things. One, uh, when the soldiers 
cast lots over Jesus' clothes. Most people think that's it, but it shows up one more time in the book of Acts chapter 1 when they're replacing Judas for the apostleship. And so the question is, is why does casting lots cease after this? And a lot of theologians believe that the reason why we don't see this in the life of the church is because believers are now indwelt with the Holy Spirit. They're sealed with the Holy Spirit, so they don't need this outward action of casting lots because now the Lord's indwelling presence is with them. Now, there was some people in church history who did like casting lots. This is double bonus for today. Feel free to not take any notes at this point. Uh, John Wesley uh, founder of the Wesleyan movement, Methodist movement. He was a big fan of casting lots as church history goes. And I don't know how accurate this is, but the story goes is that when he was trying to determine if he was going to be more on the sovereignty of God or more on the free will of man, was he trying to make that determination that he actually casted lots on which way his theology should go and that it landed towards the free will Think about that for a second, right? Your sovereignty of God or the free will of man, and you cast lots and make that decision? You kind of already decided, I think, but I mean, could be wrong. Now, they cast lots, and the lots all point to Jonah, right? Because the Lord's directing the lots. And so they go, Who are you? Where are you from? Blah, 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 blah. And look, he says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord of heaven and earth. His theology is intact. The reality of trying to get away from the presence of the Lord, he doesn't actually think that he's going to get away from the Lord. This is really a representation that he's trying to quit his occupation as a prophet. That's what he means to get away from the presence of the Lord. Because notice they say, what's your, what's your job? That's the, one part, that's the one question he doesn't answer. Why? Because he's in between jobs. He doesn't have his resume put together yet, right? He's on his way. He doesn't know what he's going to become yet. Imagine being that stubborn that theologically he's on point. I, f I fear the Lord. This is the same as saying I obey the Lord. I believe who made heaven and earth. Good theology. Practically speaking, it's not there, right? Stubborn unreasonably obstinate. Now the sailors, they know this is a big problem. So they freak out. So they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. For he said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For, you. for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, some people, some pastors, some theologians have looked at this, and they say the moment that Jonah is willing to sacrifice himself by being thrown into the sea is the very moment that Jonah is most like Jesus. Because Jesus was willing to go to the cross and sacrifice himself 
for the sins of the world. And so Jonah is willing to save himself by being thrown into the sea. But there's a problem with that. And what's the problem? If this is when he's most like Jesus, chapter 2 of Jonah would never need to exist. Because when Jonah's in the belly of the whale, he has to repent. Chapter 2 is a lament. It only exists because Jonah is not right before the Lord. It's only the part of repenting from his stubbornness that he gets spit out to start chapter 3. How do you end up being most like Jesus and then you need to go repent from your action, right? See, the Lord doesn't want his sacrifice. The Lord wants his obedience. The Lord doesn't need him dead. The Lord needs him in Nineveh. But he's, this, I think, is actually the height of his stubbornness. He's so unreasonably obstinate that he would rather die than obey the Lord. He would rather die than preach the message of repentance to Nineveh. This is a stubborn prophet. Now, as we close out this chapter, there's two things. One, solution isn't there. Solution isn't there. He's in the belly of the whale. Second thing, it's real easy for us to look at Jonah and go, you're an idiot. You're a fool, Jonah. And here's why. Think about it. Jonah, prophet of the Lord. As you read chapter 1, Jonah is the guy who should be doing exactly what the Lord tells him. But what do we see here? The Lord sends a storm and the storm obeys. It says the Lord appointed a storm. The storm obeys. Sailors, pagan sailors, cast lots. The lots fall to Jonah. This inanimate object obeys the Lord. The pagan sailors, after being saved from the storm, make sacrifices to the Lord. They are worshiping and praising Yahweh. The pagan sailors are. And then finally, the great fish is appointed by the Lord and swallows Jonah. The fish is obeying the Lord. Do you see that? Nature, inanimate objects, pagans, animals, all of it obeying the Lord. And the one person who should be, the prophet, is obstinate. And if I'm speaking to you as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a person who says, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I am convinced that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the grave to give me new life, if we're really honest, when we take stock of our life, of what we're willing to do and not willing to do, we might start to look a little bit more like Jonah than we're comfortable admitting. That the Lord has saved us from hell, from eternal separation. He has removed sins from our life, yet there's these areas of our life that we want to hold on to ourselves to keep to our very own. 
We might be more like Jonah than we want to admit. And perhaps this picture will help you. There's a lawyer named Bob Goff. Now, typically when you think of a lawyer, they're a little slimy, a little conniving. Not all of them, just the stereotypes. The ambulance chasers, perhaps. Bob is the opposite. He's a hugger. He loves people. He'll do anything. He'll give a shirt off the back. He once had his office on the ship at Disneyland because it had Wi-Fi. He'd take a raft out there every day with his laptop. Neat guy. And whenever he was coaching a client through cross-examination, this was his, his advice. He said, when you're being cross-examined, the other attorney is going to try to get you worked up. They're going to try to get you mad. And you're going to find that your arms are crossed, your hands are clenched. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to turn your palms up. I want you to put them on your lap. And I want you to keep them like that the entire time. Don't close them. Don't cross them. Just keep your palms up. And here's the thing. When your palms are up, you're never going to react. And this is the reason why. Because palms up is the position of surrender, of submission. And the honest truth is, is that the only way forward from stubbornness, from being unreasonably obstinate from the Lord, is surrender. Surrender is the only way forward. Palms up. And so I have to ask you this question. What aspect of your life have you been closed off to the Lord? Where in your life do you need to begin to take a posture of surrender before him and say, Lord, this is yours. Lord, I'm not comfortable with this. Lord, I'm scared about this. Lord, I really don't know how this is going to work. But if you're good enough and great enough and strong enough to rescue me from the pits of hell, then I can trust you with this. Then I can surrender this to you as well. And I don't know what you're going through right now, but I want you to think about this. The Lord loved Jonah enough that he let him get swallowed by a whale at the bottom of the ocean. And so the Lord's willing to take us through whatever it takes for us to get to this point. Sometimes we're going, oh, I'm going through hard times. I thought this stuff following Jesus was supposed to be leading to good times. But the reality is, if we're living in such a way they were trying to hold back something from God. He'll take us through it, and he'll take us through it, and he'll take us through it until finally we go, Lord, I'm yours. All of me. And I don't know if it's the Great Commission. I don't know if you're holding back the truth of the gospel and going and sharing with people. I don't know if it's in the treasure and the generosity piece. I don't know where it's at. But my hope is, is that in a moment when we go to prayer, is that you would be honest and vulnerable before the Lord to invite him to search you and to show that to you. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, 
If you've been maybe coming to church and you've been hearing Pastor Matt preach, I want to tell you this. Everything in the relationship with God starts the moment that you surrender to him. Going to church and reading your Bible, these are good things, but it all actually starts with just surrendering and saying, Jesus, I am yours. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you raised from the grave to give me new life. And so my encouragement for you is this. You don't need to get anything else straightened out except for that. Surrender to Jesus. When I was 18 years old, I was coming outside of a restaurant in Moline, Illinois, and an old man who was 80-plus standing there in a suit, he stopped me and he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, are you going to go to, what do you think is going to happen when you die? And I said, well, I'll go to heaven, I'll go to hell, I'll become a ghost, I'll become another person, something else will happen, or nothing at all will happen. I said, I've studied every major religion, that's the six options. He said, you got right with the first two, you're going to go to heaven, you're going to go to hell, and I can tell you how. I knew the guy was a Christian. So we started arguing and arguing and arguing for 20 minutes. And the guy just kept the word out in front of me. Read this, listen to this, read this, listen to this. And so finally, I said, sir, what do I need to do to politely end this conversation? <laughs> and he said, you need to put your faith in Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I'd had people tell me that I should believe in Jesus. But I never had someone tell me that I can't end the conversation until I do put my faith in Jesus. That was different. And I said, sir, you don't get it. I said, I got too many things wrong. I got issues. I got baggage. I'm still doing these things. I know they're not good, but I do them. Still messing around. And for the first time in the conversation, he became frustrated with me. And he said, are you ignorant or stupid? It's friendship evangelism. <laughs> he said, you're going to sin with or without Jesus. You're going to make mistakes with or without Jesus. But with Jesus, you have forgiveness. And so that night, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. I went to Jesus in prayer, and I went palms up. I said, Jesus, I'm all yours. Because I knew that if I went palms up to Jesus and nothing changed, that was my nail in the coffin argument against Christianity. And ladies and gentlemen, what happened that night was that everything changed after that. I said, amen. I opened my eyes with tears of men. The sins were lifted. The Holy Spirit was deposited. I look at this man who was a stranger that I've been arguing with for 20 minutes. I hugged and I embraced him. I said, thank you. And so I don't know where you're at today. But if you're not yet at that point where you said, Jesus, I'm yours, you got to start there. And then for the rest of us where we said, Jesus, I'm yours, but we've been holding back this part, today is the day where we give it over to him. And I want to close with this quote from this poem Invictus that has been used in a lot of good scenarios, but ultimately it's the downfall of our Western civilization. This poem by William Ernest Henley, the last stanza says this, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I tell you what, a lot of Christians are still living like that's true. 
And Charles Spurgeon rebuked that. 16 years later, he said this. Every person must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior, and you will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the uniform of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. If you could see our captain, you would go down on your knees and beg him to let you enter the ranks of those who follow him. It is heaven to serve Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm praying for your spirit to move. I'm asking, Lord, that in your grace and your kindness that you would speak. I pray, Lord, that each person here would have the boldness and the courage to go palms up. Lord, I pray for that man or that woman here today, Lord, that has yet to give their life to Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that today is the day that they confess that Jesus Christ is their Savior. And Lord, for those of us who have been following after you, and we've been seeking refuge or comfort in these sins, Oh, Lord, you've been calling us to do something for you, and we go, it's too big, it's too hard. I pray, Lord, that you would speak right now. Show us exactly in our heart where that place is for us. And, Lord, with open hands, with a position of surrender, Lord, that we acknowledge that you are exactly who you say you are. You're the God of the universe. That you've chosen us before the foundation of the world. That you prepare good works in advance for us to do, Lord. And that, Lord, today we would say, we'll give it up and we'll do exactly what you're calling us to do. Lord, we love you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for transforming us. And we pray, Lord, that you go ahead of us and that we would trust, Lord, in the certainty that when we're walking with you, that we're more than conquerors. That, Lord, we would trust that with you, that our paths are straight. And that, Lord, even though there are hard times, everything is better in step with you, with your son, Jesus Christ. May you be exalted in our lives in the way that we think, in the way that we speak, in the way that we live. May we be found faithful and obedient. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.